complicated. When I decided to, to dig in, and this is what I wanted to speak about, um, this is a tip of the iceberg kind of thing. There's so much going on with um, heaven and hell and the end times and our place in that and how we should understand those things and why it should be important to us. So we're going we're gonna to work through that this morning the best we can. And I hope I can make it clear for you what God intended. Deuteronomy 29.29, we're going to see this verse over and over and over in this message. It's a very um, simple verse and it's uh, very profound. 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Seems so simple. There are secret things that God, only God knows. And there are those things that God revealed to us. And I like to look at it as, and we hang on to those things because that's what we have. We're not privy to the secret things, otherwise they wouldn't be secret. secret. So what I'm going to speak about this morning has some clear teaching and has some difficult-to-understand teaching, and in some cases, little to no teaching to help us understand what we're, we're looking at. That's not a bad thing. That's just the way it is. And the reason for this message, there's a lot of despair in the world today. I'm sure you've noticed. The world seems to be in more despair than I think I've ever seen it in my short time here on this earth. And I do believe that the world view as a whole is desperate for hope. It's desperate for hope. But it just continues to look in all the wrong places for it. I think wealth and power continue to top the list of things that people think will bring them hope in their lives. My dad used to say half-jokingly and half-serious that money can't buy happiness, but it can get you pretty close. And then he used to say as well that it's better to be rich and unhappy than poor and unhappy. And I tell you, that's sad. I, I, I think it's sad that there are people who actually think that way. And people are trying to amass wealth and power, hoping against hope that this will all somehow make their lives better now and in the future, with really no regard to their eternal soul. In Mark chapter 8, it talks about, this is very strong, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world to lose his soul. What can you give in exchange for your soul? How many times have you heard or witnessed the rich and the powerful or even the poor and the lowly brought down by a disease too small to see with the naked eye yet powerful enough to take a life with no regard for position or stature? How many times have you seen the rich and powerful lose all hope and shrink away when some bad deed from their past surfaces. We see it regularly. What about the countless stories of natural events like hurricanes and volcanoes and fires and earthquakes consuming everything in its path? The things that we have worked so hard to gain are gone in an instant. This can be scary. It's depressing, devastating if we are without hope. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. It seems we may have maybe forgotten the words written by Job as his trials began to unfold. When he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, to have that attitude in everything that we do. 
Today's message is not meant to frighten us or discourage us. In fact, it's my intention is to be one of encouragement. And it's said that many churches avoid sin and depravity in their preaching and preach only that God is love. And we know that to be true. And only encouraging messages are shared because there's plenty of discouragement in our lives and we don't need to hear about it. Well, unfortunately, that may tend to leave people who leave that service on an emotional high, but they're ill-equipped to move through the day to honor God. Our understanding of hell increases our understanding and appreciation of heaven. Sin is a part of this message. It's not the biggest part. The gospel is the biggest part. But nevertheless, it has to be said. We have to be able to compare these things. I will say that clearly the condition of the world is in is, in the broad sense, a result of sin and depravity by the human race. The original creation was not intended to be this way. And God provided us with the ability to choose and make decisions, and we chose to disobey our Creator. And sin flourished on the earth. Sinful choices have dire consequences. One major consequence to this sin is the lake of fire. That was designed for Satan and his angels, the demons that fell. And now it's open to the public. Romans 8 tells us that even the creation groans and suffers because of the sin of mankind. But even as bad as it has gotten, we have great hope in our Savior. We have a great promise, great promises about our life yet to come because he is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. He is a loving God. As believers of the gospel, our hope is real. And soon, the greatness of our hope will be revealed to those of us who trust in Jesus as Savior. The state of the unbeliever is real as well. And, as soon, and soon, they will understand the tragedy of rejecting the gospel. To better appreciate heaven, we need to talk a little bit about hell. We're, we're going to try to clarify, we'll try to clarify to you the various names and phases about hell and Hades and Sheol and Gehana and the lake of fire. And I thought that would be relatively simple. And trust me, it is not. Because there is so much overlap in the use of terms that we have to work hard at trying to understand what each of those places do and don't do, what they're for and what they're not for. So we're going to work through that. It's interesting to me that, that most of our understanding about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. His love for us compelled him to warn us of what will happen if we ignore the gospel. It's good for us to understand these terms and how they're used so that the context we have is correct and it's a foundation as we seek to know him and know about heaven and hell. So, in the Old Testament, Hades, which is a Greek word, and Sheol, which is a Hebrew word, are the same place. Hades and Sheol are the same place. They're used interchangeably. And they simply mean the place of the unseen or the invisible world of the dead. The invisible world of the dead. That's what we, so that's what Hades is. The invisible to us world of the dead. In the Old Testament, um, this Hades and Sheol, they, they were used interchangeably, and some say that possibly both the righteous and the unrighteous 
die and go to Hades. It's kind of a holding tank, per se. But there's some problems with that in that thinking because, and this is how it gets, it can get complicated for us, is, is we know uh, that the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration seemed to show that all or some select believers were not confined to the place called Hades prior to Christ's finished work. So here's the idea. Hades is a place where when you die, your soul goes. It doesn't have a body. It goes to Hades. And some think, some say, that righteous and the unrighteous go there and are waiting. We have different information that kind of contradicts that. And it's, we know that the New Testament teaching is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you can see it's a little difficult for us to understand how that all works. I believe personally that us as believers, whether before or after the, the work of Christ, when we died, we stood before the Lord. And it's difficult to know how all that comes together, but at least we are sure that Hades is not hell, but more like a pretrial facility. For you, Greg. I, and I, I tried to put it this way in terms that I could understand it. If hell was a building, Hades is the lobby. Okay? Get that picture in your mind. If hell is the building, Hades is the lobby. You are one step away from being inside. It appears, at least in a couple of the New Testament examples, Hades continues to be a holding place for those destined for hell. Probably the most stark example of that is Luke 16. And I'm confident that most here in this room are, are familiar with the story. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Not Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. This is a different Lazarus. But the story of the rich man who had everything on earth is, is uh, probably, the Lord is probably indicating this is a Pharisee because that's who he was talking to. That was the audience that he was saying this to. So we have this Pharisee who's living a splendid life. Plenty of food, plenty of clothing, just wonderful. And Lazarus, the poor man, was put at his gate each day and he was sickly and weak and poor. And it says that even the dogs would come and lick his sores. He was in that kind of shape. And it says the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is simply a word that means heaven. It's the only place it's used in, in the Bible, but in regular literature, Abraham's bosom is just another word for heaven. So it's easy for us to conclude that. Lazarus died and angels carried him to heaven. And the rich man died and was buried. Different. He buried he found himself in Hades. And he looked up and he saw Abraham and Lazarus. And he cried out, Abraham, I want you to understand something here. This Pharisee and Lazarus, Pharisee looked down at Lazarus. And now here he is in heaven looking up where Lazarus is. And in his mind, he's not compassionate. He is still thinking of him as a servant when he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to me, have him dip his finger in water, put it on my tongue, because I'm in agony. The flames are just, just terrible. And Abraham says, child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, 
so that those who wish to come over from here to you can't. And none of those may cross over there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, this is the the rich man, I beg you, Father, send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that they may be warned, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. All kinds of things are going on in this passage. The strength of the gospel alone is it's being said right there. All we need is the gospel. Moses and the prophets. That's all we need is that. We don't need to have revelations from the grave or soothsayers or witnesses that say that. That's all we need, and it's been clear in that. But there's all kinds of things going on there about heaven, and, and you see in Hades, there's torment going on. It's conscious. It's a place. It's real. And in this particular example, there's a great chasm that's fixed. So at least from Hades, we can see that there may be some special privileges that you won't have in hell, that maybe you can see into heaven, which is probably not a good thing to see what, how great Lazarus has it now. But you maybe can communicate too. So you can see it gets kind of complicated. It infers that one is righteous and one is unrighteous. It, they're treated differently. Lazarus is carefully carried by angels into heaven, and the unrighteous man is simply buried, and he ends up in Hades. The rich man is in agony, pleading for help. Abraham asks... And he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to him as a servant. Abraham reminds him of his life and says, And besides, there's a great chasm here. I can't get to you. After some negotiation to no avail, he's reminded that his five brothers and himself have Moses and the prophets. They need to hear them. And he warns them that if they don't believe that, they wouldn't believe anything else. This is not hell as some people might think, but it's close. Hades will be cast into the lake of fire at the last judgment. Hades, the place where the souls are of those who have died. And I have come to believe through this, it's for the unrighteous, not the righteous. And that will be the second death. And we'll see later on about this death and the sea and Hades and all that sort of stuff in the, in the judgments that come up. So we can see that it is a place and there is a consciousness and physical pain, a foreshadowing of hell, and perhaps a few privileges. Maybe they can see, maybe they can communicate, they just don't know. But unlike heaven, it's a dull place. It's a dull place of waiting for the final great white throne judgment. Pastor Greg mentioned that this morning. So we have Hades being the invisible to us place for dead souls. Dead souls without bodies. And again, it's like the pretrial holding place for the unrighteous soul until the bodily resurrection. So, for those declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus, it's a whole different deal. And if you look at, well, if you listen to, at least, listen to 2 Corinthians 5, it says, therefore, being always of good courage, okay, this is an encouragement, always of good courage, and knowing that while we are home in the body, here, 
we are absent from the Lord there. But we walk by faith, which we do, and not by sight. So we don't need to have anything other than the gospel that we have. And be of good courage, I say, and prefer, rather, desire to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Yeah, amen. That's, that's what our desire should be. We are here, we live, we endure, wanting to be in the presence of the Lord. Hades is a bit different place than hell. And why is this important for us to know? It shows that comfort for believers is immediate when we are absent from the body. There is no purgatory. I grew up with that idea, that notion of purgatory. You died, you went to purgatory. And the idea was that, well, if your relatives had enough money or they liked you well enough to pray for you or say rosaries or the things that they did, um, you could spend an indefinite amount of time being purged of your sins, suffering as punishment until you eventually make it into heaven. It sounds ludicrous for me to even say these things, but that's what some believe. But there is no second shot at this. When you die, you are judged. You're in Hades. You're in the presence of the Lord. There's no cleansing possible anymore. You made your decision or failed to make your decision, and that's it. Hell is the final resting place after the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Hell is a place of unimaginable pain, persecution, affliction, and eternal separation from God. the church in Thessalonica was being afflicted. And it says this, that Jesus and his mighty angels in flaming fire will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And, you know, Jesus often shared how bad hell is by way of word pictures. In Mark 9, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, rip it out. Take it out. He says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what life in hell is like. The worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And we cannot know exactly what hell looks like or how hot it will be. But scriptures do use some descriptive language of hell that give us an idea of what hell will be like. It's sure to be a place of torment, which is the Bible often pictures as fiery. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever had a burn or not. I've had a few burns as a, as a welder by by trade for a while and then by hobby and a hot piece of metal drops on you and it and it burns you there's just no relief ah, cold water is fine butter all that all these home remedies it hurts it always hurts i can't imagine a forever like that and yet that's what we're told hell will be like and some take the bible's descriptions of hell as symbolic because some of the descriptions are difficult to reconcile with each other for example you're trying to picture hell as both fire in Matthew 25 and then outer darkness in Matthew 8. It seems kind of paradoxical. Can you have that? 
there is a flame that you can have with alcohol that you can't see the flame, but it's there. It's just unseen. But you can't, God is not the God of the impossible, can't do anything. He could make that if that's what he chose to do, and it may exist already, making a dark fire or so on. But the descriptions still could be literal. But even if the language describing hell is symbolic, the place itself is real, and the reality will no doubt be worse than the symbols, because this is a place that's prepared. God prepared this for the devil and his angels. The scriptural descriptions of hell are meant to emphasize the torment and suffering that will be experienced by those sent there. The fire might represent or be a picture of God's wrath and that is experienced by the unbelievers in hell, whereas the outer darkness may be a picture of the alienation from God, his love and his mercy and his grace. What? can't even think about the idea of being away from God's love, mercy, and grace. Whether the vivid language is symbolic or literal, we can be assured that hell is a terrible and terrifying place. And probably the most terrifying aspect of hell is its duration. The suffering is eternal. It has no end. Now, before you get into that seems unfair mode, be clear that there is no injustice with God. Remember, we started out with Deuteronomy 29, 29, and this is one of those places it takes place. The secret things of God are God's. The things that are revealed to us, we hang on to. We better not, and this is a warning, we better not judge God for his program and the things that are secret that we don't know about hell and the duration and the endurance. So God is the master of his mercy. And remember that. God is the master of his mercy. It's his choice who receives mercy. Satan and the demons are eternally under the wrath of God for their rebellion. People are in hell for failing to repent and seek forgiveness that the gospel offers. In Romans 9, it says this, and it implies that God could justly destroy sinners for the first time they sin, but instead he endures with much patience the rebellion, then at the right time gives them what they are self-prepared for, eternal wrath. That should make us forever grateful for the gospel. We are all destined for hell. But by the mercy and grace of God, we are spared. So when we think, it's not fair to send them to hell, be careful. Be careful. Here's some passages that describe hell for, for those of us who, or for those who deny the gospel. Matthew 25 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 8, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 20, and the devil who, received, who deceived them, this is towards the end of times, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, lake of fire, 
where the beast and the false prophets have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. I, this really got me excited when I started reading through this stuff about the, the precision of this and the difficulty understanding the moving pieces. Romans chapter 2 says, But for those who are self-seeking and who reject, you reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Hell, although we don't know exactly what it will look like, will be a place of unending suffering and torment from which there will be no escape. Hell is not a social gathering with your friends. You may have friends there, but you will be alone. It's dark, it's lonely, it's painful, it's depressing, and it's eternal. And those aren't my words. And just as a side note, I was thinking about this this morning, we often picture hell, this fiery hole in the ground, and you show up there, and there's Satan and his demons, and they start ordering you around, and you're living over here, and you're doing that, and the, the torment goes on. That is totally wrong thinking. That is not even close to biblical thinking about what hell is and what Satan and his demons roll her. Satan will be tormented day and night. It's not his new kingdom. His kingdom is non-existent. The demons won't be tormenting us or those in hell. They will be tormented by their very presence and the, and the power of God. So get that book of Dante's Inferno and all that stuff. That is totally wrong. They will not have a kingdom that we will go to and I guess that's probably where they get, we'll have a party in hell. But Satan is not in charge. He is not in charge. There are only two groups of people. One group will spend a glorious eternity in the presence of God. The other group will spend a dark eternity away from the presence of God. The difference in believing, the difference is believing the gospel of Jesus, and we are encouraged to have hope by God's word. 2 Corinthians 4. This one really got my attention, and I spent some time on this. It says this in verse 16 through 18, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, we see that, and our inner person is being renewed day by day, we should feel that. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I don't want you to misunderstand this passage. These words are not at all minimizing pain and suffering that we go through. I understand suffering. I, I fight a battle against cancer, and, and as many in this body have and, and will and the treatment and the side effects, they're cause for great fear and for suffering. And, and that's not all. As I fight through this battle, I can rest assured that some other sickness or some other circumstance or some other catastrophe is going to get me. We lose loved ones, and that hurts. 
Life is changed in an instant. These verses about momentary light affliction are not making light of our circumstances. We're not being told to put some dirt on it and walk it off. No, we're, we're being encouraged to understand that as difficult and heartbreaking as life can be, it is momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of the glory that's out there. It's like giving a stranger our last piece of bread <laughs> and discovering that we are invited to a never-ending buffet by our kitchen crew. That'd be pretty great, wouldn't it? The contrast is astounding. The greatness of heaven far exceeds any suffering we may have. So don't give up. We're one day closer. We have heaven revealed to us to help us get through these moments in this life here on this earth. We are saved from hell and we are transformed into a new body and a new understanding of heavenly things. Well, this should excite us, and at least that's what I thought. But for several months back, I was kind of checking my focus on eternal things and rather than the temporal things, and I fell in love with the passage in John, John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I see this picture, I see this picture in my mind of Jesus talking to his disciples or maybe just his apostles and whoever was in hearing range. But he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you. If it wasn't that way, I would have told you. The sincerity. It's incredible. Incredible. So I love that. So my hope meter went off the charts. I started thinking about this every morning. I'm one day closer. There's a place made for me by God himself. Well, then I discovered some dark, disturbing news. I discovered that there's Christians who think hell, that heaven will be boring. Not interested in hanging out all day in white robes singing praises to God because they don't understand what heaven's about. How dare anybody think that God could be boring, (laughs) so disrespectful. So where do we start helping people that need to see the right things? Of course, the Bible has the answer. We have information about the millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, in the heavens that exist now, which is the abode of God. And yeah, I know when we get kind of towards the end of the book in the Bible, the Revelation, it starts going like, whoa, things are moving 100 miles an hour, and how do we sort this out? And we just kind of move away from it and just wait for the end. But let me tell you, we're going to work through a little bit of that today. It should be clear from what I just shared about hell that logically heaven would be just so opposite, it would be breathtakingly awesome. It is equally clear that heaven... And being in the presence of God are a lot for our brains to process. However, just because we find it hard to understand what is literal or what is figurative or when it will happen or how it's going to happen doesn't make it boring. It's quite the opposite. Psalm 1611, we were praying about this this morning. This took on a whole new path for me. You will make, this is the psalmist writing, you will make known to me the path of life. 
I used to think that just meant walking through this world. But I was wrong. Because in it, in your presence, is fullness of joy. When will we be in his presence? When we're in heaven. In your right hand are the pleasures forever. When will we get those pleasures? When we're in heaven. And the first part of that verse is, you will make known to me the path of life. It is the path of life that we have from here forever. Presence of fullness of joy, pleasures in your right hand forever. Fullness of joy, pleasures forever. That does not sound like heaven's going to be boring. My guess is that life after death will be more than we can understand while we're in these temporary earthly bodies, at least at this point. My hope is that we see how bad hell is and how great heaven is. And then we have something to look forward to. Years ago, Sandy and I took our first motorhome trip for a couple of months. And we planned a lot of things and found out that there's a lot of things we didn't know about this trip. We didn't know that it's better to exchange our American money for Canadian money when we're traveling through Canada, so we're not giving 25% of our money away as we're driving through there. And how to make RV reservations and let them know and understand what these parks will accommodate and whether they have dog runs, and speaking of dogs, all the paperwork involved in coming and going and 30 days of this and getting recertifications, and there was a ton of stuff driving through areas of our country that are known to be high wind areas. Oh, we didn't know that. We just showed up and got windy. But we just didn't know about that kind of stuff. So we didn't even really know what we didn't know. We just knew that we were about to embark on an adventure to see and experience the wonderful things that we had only heard about or read about in a brochure. Did we have all the information? No. Did we have an idea how much potential for fun and excitement there was before? Yes. Did the planning and the saving for the trip alter our lives? Yes. Did our focus on our trip influence the days that we were counting down? Yes. Were we disappointed? Not in the least. And these are just temporal things that we get excited about. We do not know precisely what heaven will be like, but we can gain some understanding by looking at some of the things we do know. Hell, eternal fire. Heaven, eternal comfort. Hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heaven, no tears of sorrow. Hell, eternal separation. Heaven, eternal presence. Hell is lonely. Heaven is perfectly social. Hell is depressing. Heaven is overwhelmingly peaceful and joyous. Hell has no escape possible. Heaven is no escape desired. There's so many moving parts to consider. There's a few things that we can see while not violating the principles of Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord. So we'll hang on to those things that have been revealed. Seeking to know the secrets of God is dangerous. They're secret for a reason. Following the path of things revealed to us is okay, and it's encouraged. Simple things like, where is heaven? It's up. 
I mean, I'm not trying to overstate that or understate it. It's, it's up. John 3.13 says, The Son of Man came down from heaven. After his resurrection in Acts 1, as they were standing there, that some of his closest friends were standing there, and they watched him go into heaven. And the two angels that showed up says, Why are you looking into heaven? He's going to come back down the same way he went in. I'm confident that one day soon we will all know where the place called heaven physically is. And whether that's billions of miles away or just another dimension that we haven't, we, didn't, we don't know how to sense yet, it's a real place. If there's any doubts, think about Psalm 11, 4. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It's a place. It's a place. This was one of my most um, interesting thoughts that I had not thought about this until I was doing a little word search. But it's Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Do you know what those are in the Bible? Ezekiel 28 and, and Isaiah 14. Those are descriptions of Satan and his fall. The five I wills in Isaiah and the, the sequence of events in um, Ezekiel. These both speak of Satan and his fall from heaven. Satan, the perfect angelic beauty, was a guard of the throne. He had a job. He was a cherub. cherub he was of the order of cherubim. The same order that God put two angels in front of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out after they had sinned to guard the garden. So the same class of, of, in the Garden of Eden to prevent access to the tree of life after Adam's sin. Satan's goal is to leave earth here. This is the place. We know this. We're here. Leave earth and get back to heaven and set himself up above God. Heaven is clearly a place that he was because he was cast down from there. And the place that he currently is is he's banned to live here on earth. His goal is to get back to the place called heaven and be the supreme ruler. And he will ultimately end up in the place he fears the most, the place that was prepared for him and his angels, the lake of fire. These are real places that are... Daniel chapter 4 says, I was looking into my visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Matthew 6 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The place. Matthew 6. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. You get it? God is in heaven. It's a place. It's a place. And there are many, many other passages that make these kind of references as the place where God is. And so you might say, but God is everywhere and no place can contain him. Well, remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. He tells us. He has revealed to us these things. We need to hang on to those things. The secret things we shouldn't go chasing. But we hang on to the things that he has told us. And he told us that he lives in a place that we're going to be. You hang on to that. He's revealed it through his word, through the prophets, and through his son. That there is a place called heaven. We know that much. We embrace what we know. It will be beyond great and impossible to be boring. We also know that heaven is not the millennial kingdom. It might be very small taste of what we're looking forward to, but it's not heaven on earth. <clears throat> As time on this planet continues on, at some point, the plans 
and events of the book of Revelation will begin to take place. These events will clearly be seen as the wrath of God. You know, today we think about the powers to be. We know that God has a plan. When the, when the tribulation gets rolling, it will be clear these are the wrath of God judgments on mankind. Fortunately for us as the church, we will be raptured away before that all starts. We'll be in heaven. We, there's evidence. I'm not going to spend the time to go in there, but read through the seven churches and in the book of Revelation and the promises that God made to save the churches from the wrath of God during that time. And we know that when the church is raptured up, there's no more instructions in the book of Revelation about how the church is to deal with the tribulation. You know, you have seven churches that were given specific instruction, and it's kind of all those things were for the universal church. They're all applicable to what we even we do today. But there's no information on how to handle the beasts and the false prophets because we're in heaven watching this happen. He promised he would keep the church from the hour of testing. Revelation 3. Look it up. Check it out. The test that's taking place is for the remaining inhabitants of the world because all the believers are gone. And some pass the test and most don't. And the wrath of God is more of the focus in heaven, than heaven during the end times. Here's a broad recap of what's going to happen in these end times. And there's going to be overlaps in time, so try not to be too critical about these things because some of them are happening at the same time, some of them just a couple days apart and months apart. But the rapture to the, of the church to heaven were pulled out. There's no believers left on earth. There are converts and martyrs, and I've kind of na- named this the Salvation Army, which is the 144,000 Jews, 12 from 12,000 from each tribe, that will now preach the gospel. They will be the, the new testimony for this time during the seven-year tribulation. Then the battle of Armageddon takes place in the second coming of Jesus. And false prophets and the beasts of the great tribulation are thrown in the lake of fire. Yes, amen. And Satan is bound up and locked up and put in the abyss for a thousand years. The millennial kingdom starts. It's all believers as it starts. But there's nearly 30 generations between the start and the end. And babies have babies, have babies, have babies, and more and more people are born. And as hard as it is for us to understand, and I will pull the 2929 card, is that there will be people who are under the rule of the Lord himself, and they won't like it. And they will quietly rebel. And a thousand years ends, and Satan is turned loose. To do what he must do. Interesting, the words used to Judas with the Lord. He says, go do what you have to do and do it quickly. Knowing full well he was going to betray him. And here Satan is turned loose to do what he needs to do. And that is to organize all the rebellious nations that are out there and reveal their true character. And it says this, Satan and his new army come up against the camp of the Lord. His army is like the sand of the sea. Probably millions of people. Picture that coming around the, the city of the holy city of Jerusalem and Satan got all this firepower around him. And Revelation 20 says this, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come down and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. So disappointed. 
the number of them like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You ready? And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who was deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I like watching World War II videos. You know, you watch the, the attacks of the beaches and you see the, uh, trying to take the islands and moving through the, the countries and the, the strategy. And you win a battle today, you lose a battle tomorrow. Thousands of lives are lost. Day, you know, you have details of the weaponry and all that's going on. And the battle goes on for like four years. And we got to see all of that recorded for us to understand. You would think a battle like this, where there's millions of people surrounding a city, which, by the way, it's a huge city. We'll get to that in a second. But it's, um, well, I have a non-biblical example of what that battle is like. You ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Maybe somehow I'll try to paint a picture for you. But there's a scene where Indiana Jones, the good guy, is being chased around this village with all these assassins. They're chasing him, and he's hiding and ducking and weaving and going on. And he runs out into an open square where all the citizens of the village are hanging there. And he walks out there, and just just a few feet away from this gigantic size of a man, all dressed in his his garb, his, his white robes, and his eyes are visible. And he pulls out this monster sword. And we know Indy's got a whip, but that's about it. And he swings that monster sword around like this a couple of times. And Indiana Jones, kind of with a little smirk, reaches in his side pouch, pulls the trigger, dead. And it was the first time I read it, I laughed out loud because I was thinking, what a display of power against that big old sword, and it's over. Think about the Lord his display of power just to say those words after the the city is surrounded by millions of armed rebels ready to take that city out I, I would have loved to see what that looked like on TV and fire came down from heaven and devoured them that's it they're gone they're done in probably a matter of seconds, like that 185,000 of Assyrians that were killed one night by an angel came in and said, don't worry, I got this. 185,000 people did. I think that is so cool. That's the power of God. That's the weakness of Satan. And he's not in his new little kingdom. He's in the lake of fire that burns forever. Out of touch, out of reach. He's reunited with his friends, the beast and the false prophets. Then the great white throne judgment takes place. Hades gives up his dead in them, and they are judged. Death in Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. That refers to, like where it talks about the sea gives up its dead. There are many bodies that were destroyed, either through fire, cremation, in the sea, dissolving. Those will all come back together. God will give them their body prepared for hell, like he gives us a body prepared for heaven. And they're all thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second and final death for all of that. The first earth and the first heaven are totally destroyed, and a new heaven and a new earth are created, and the saints will have a home in the new Jerusalem. And that new Jerusalem is in the presence of God, and it's a big place. As the chapter opens in twenty-one, twenty-two of Revelation, 
all the sinners of all ages, both demons and men, including Satan, the beast, the false prophets, are all in the lake of fire forever. The universe is destroyed. God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Second Peter even talked about it, and there's a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament and New Testament that talk about God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Heaven's going to pass away, but his words will never pass away. No more sea. There'll be a different system of climate. At this point, the chronology of the Revelation, the Old Testament saints, the Tribulation saints, and those converted during the Millennial Kingdom will be incorporated into the ultimate redeemed bride and will dwell in New Jerusalem. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and, and hope that you guys will read through Revelation 20, 21, 22 and see all the marvelous things and the, the size of the city and, and the things that are going to be taking place in there and, and the river of life and the tree of life and the fact that there's no more curse on humanity and earth as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, it will be totally finished. Remember, the earth is groaning. It won't be groaning anymore. God will never have to judge sin again since it will never exist in the new heavens and the new earth. That's pretty encouraging, you guys. That is something to look forward to. That makes me want to leave this temple and be in a different temple in heaven but we are patient and we endure. You know, there's this is one, uh, one thing that I was thinking of, that we shall reign as heavens, we, more than heaven citizens, we are his servants. And it's so exciting to know that. And, but those who reject God's warning will fix their eternal destiny in hell, where they will remain in their evil and filthy natures for all eternity. And those who respond to the warnings will fix their eternal destiny and glory and realize perfect righteousness and holiness in heaven. Thank you to the gospel. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. God is supreme. He sure showed it with Satan and his millions of, of troops. In, an, in a moment, they were devoured by fire. He is the beginning and the end. He's supreme. He's sovereign. There's nothing outside his knowledge. So there is no unknown factors that can sabotage his second coming. And there's a warning about adding or subtracting to these prophecies. Shouldn't do it. Some of the things are secret. Some of the things are revealed. Hang on to what we have. We must always remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things are God's and we shouldn't chase them relentlessly. We shouldn't be trying to crack the box open and figure out the hidden code God is clear. The secret things belong to God. Well, after all the dust settles, after all the judgments have been handed out, what will our lives look like in heaven? It took us a while to get there, but I think the journey was necessary to see what both sides look like, as well as all that is going on for us as we live in heaven. I believe we can see that our state of being will be joyful, peaceful, healthy, satisfied, loved, cared for. I think the safest way to look ahead, and that's all we can do at this point, is try to imagine what a day in heaven is like. We should first remind ourselves about the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven, paradise, the place where God lives. He was caught up there. 
Paul says, I don't know if I was in my body or if I was a spirit, and he's just kind of you know, trying to be as humble as he could possibly be because he's got in the breck of his brain what he saw. Anyway, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. That's the way it's described. Inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. How good must it be? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's how great it is, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself and talking about it, he was given a thorn in the flesh, and we know the, flesh, and we know the story. He, he implored the Lord three times. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, and it should be. He picked up on the secret things and stopped. Okay, that's secret, that's fine. Things are revealed, that's fine. Well, based on this account, heaven must be an incredible place to see and be a part of. So much so that Paul was prevented from giving us details of what he heard or maybe saw. And I believe that Paul was given this glimpse of what heaven was like as an ultimate encouragement to spread the gospel. And whatever Paul heard or saw in heaven, it sure didn't diminish him. You ever wonder where he gets his drive? It only strengthened his drive. I mean, we must walk by faith just because we know these things and not by sight. So there's that. The second thing we need to look at is the first creation. After all, God said that he was finished with the original creation. It was very good. Well, in heaven, there won't be any oceans. We will see a different climate system. Won't be much risk of worldwide flood. He created bodies designed to live indefinitely. It's quite possible that the new creation will be similar to the original first creation in topography and the animal kingdom. I don't know what age we will be. I don't know how to answer all those questions. It's not revealed to us. I know we will recognize one another. I don't know how that... I can hardly recognize you now. How am I going to get better? (laughs) Our talents and our giftedness will probably be different to accomplish the daily work that we have in heaven. Yes, work. I don't think we'll all be retired. It seems that some will be in charge of much and others little. We have principles there that we saw through God's word and in the colonial kingdom may be carried over into heaven. We will still be thinking beings capable of emotions made in the image of God and designed to work. I could see the new earth filled with all types of animals like the first creation, maybe some different kinds. We see the lion and the lamb together in the millennial kingdom. We have precedence for that. They can exist together. God can make that happen. And we're designed to work, and tending animals is certainly work. We will have good neighbors. We will greet each other in the morning with a friendly morning as we head off to whatever job we have. All the traffic lights will be green on your way to the grocery store. The grass will no longer be a breeding ground for your neighbor's dandelions. You will walk the neighborhood in the early evening, if there is an early evening, without fear. You can go hunting and have a shoot-and-release experience. You take a few pictures and the big old moose gets up, winks at you, and wanders off. The garbage man will never spill your can on the ground. Well, wait, will there be garbage? Well, you can see pretty quickly how we can get ourselves tied up into what we think is going to be a perfect existence in, in heaven. That's not what we should be chasing here, you guys. It's easy to drift off into this complicated life that we think is perfect. Maybe secretly it's because we're afraid it'll get old and we'll lack excitement and just maybe we'll get bored. Our thinking is so limited and so restricted 
the Creator God will be in our midst. There will be no, no, so much new stuff that we don't even have the capacity to imagine it all. Maybe we'll explore new worlds. Maybe we'll have a continual curiosity about the new world around us. <laughs> I say maybe, but most likely we will have a continual attitude of praise and thanksgiving when we see how surpassingly great this is. We'll have the peace and comfort that surpasses all comprehension. I know we all long for that peace. We will have it. The list of unknowns and limitless wonders will be so long, we'll never get to the end. This is the simple and profound reward for our faith. That hardly seems fair. To be in the presence of the Almighty God forever. You know, we talked several times, mentioned several times about the gospel of Jesus. And it's just real simple. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins on the cross. We must repent and accept God's forgiveness. We must recognize Jesus as Lord and believe the resurrection happened. Then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It needs to be there. Or the lake of fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels and all the evildoers that deserve to be there will be there. And I'd ask you to remember two things. Deuteronomy 29, 29 and be thankful that there are secret things and there are revealed things. There's enough there to make us want to be with the Lord. Maybe someday we'll understand some of the secret things. That's up to God. And also remember this, Psalm 16 and verse 11. God will make known to me the path of life. He's doing that right now. He's doing that right now. In his presence, fullness of joy. In his right hand, pleasures forever. Hope that helps. Let's pray. Father, you're great. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that program and the things that you've revealed to us and how great they are. Let us never question you or your motive or your means that you do things. Mercy is yours to command. You've lavished so much of that and so much grace and so much love on us. Just can't imagine. Just can't imagine how it's going to be. But we thank you that we get a chance to do that. We look forward to that. So to you be the glory. Amen.